Thank you for listening to this sermon from Goodwill Church, located in New York's Hudson Valley. Goodwill Church is on a mission to be a hub of revival in the Northeast and beyond. For more information about our church, please visit goodwillchurch.org. Now, here's the sermon. As I speak today, this isn't something I do often, but as an elder, I do have the responsibility of occasionally filling a pulpit. And I think your pastor purposely timed his trip to Albania directly to this weekend because uh, you may or may not know this, but we're going to be preaching, or at least I'll be preaching from the book of Nahum. If you don't know the book of Nahum, I will tell you this much. By the time we're through today, each and every one of you will be able to say you've gone through the entire book of Nahum. That's what my intention is, and we'll try to do that together. Um, I'm thinking I remembered everything. Of course, you mentioned the flowers already. If I've forgotten something, certainly just you can shout it out. If during the time that I'm preaching, you certainly can correct me if I need to be corrected. Um, I'm trusting that what I say today would be a blessing to you. So with that being said, I do want to just open with a prayer. And it's more for myself than, well, for all of us, actually. But I just trust God will bless this time. Father God, we are absolutely incredibly in awe of who you are. The, the, the songs that were sung just a while ago, if we really let this sink in, it's your breath in our lungs. Do we, do we understand that completely? It's your breath in our lungs. It's by your providence, by your care, by your love for us that we exist. And we thank you for that. You have created us, each and every one of us, in our mother's womb, intimately woven together. And each one of us has a specific task that you've called us to. I pray that our hearts would be open to what your word speaks to us, that we would receive it, and that we would be able to be your hands and feet in this world, because the world out there, Father, is lost and dying, and they need a Savior. So, Father, we should be excited about what you've done for us. And that good news, even today we'll mention the feet of good news that are on the mountains. We'll be speaking about that. It's us being out there proclaiming who our God is. So thank you for that, Father. Be with us today as we share this time. I think what I did is I left that little hujib. So I'm going to just go down there and get it. You guys are really good. You're very attentive and quiet. Wow. Thanks a lot. Okay. Oh, my bad. Can you just take that back quick? Oh, there we go. Okay. So the book of Nahum, it's... Uh, in the, in the Jewish, in the Jewish uh, history, um, they would call it the scroll of the 12 prophets, the 12 prophets, I guess. So uh, Nahum would be the seventh in a line of prophets that we've been studying through. So you know we've been going through the prophets. I'm sure that uh, your pastor has been doing that as well. And we've learned various aspects of it. But many of these prophets are directed to um, the condition of Israel. And uh, as we've gone through this, one of the prophets you have probably probably studied not so long ago, uh, probably a few weeks ago, was the prophet Jonah. And if you remember that story, the condensed version is Jonah was called to go to Nineveh, and uh, he kind of rebelled against it. He didn't want to go to Nineveh, and he ran away, swallowed by a big fish. Then he was put back on the shore by God's grace, and he did go to Nineveh. What you may or may not know is the reason Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh and speak to the city of Nineveh because he knew God. He knew God very well, and he knew that God is a merciful, caring, loving God. And if he was to go to Nineveh, which was a city that was in ter terrible strait, they were just really doing all the things they should not have been doing. He knew that if he went to Nineveh, proclaimed that message, that they would repent and that they would be repentant and God would grant them mercy and they would not be punished. And in his own heart, he believed that they should be punished. So his idea was, if I don't tell them, then they're going to get punished. God's plan was, you're going to tell them, and they will not get punished. So today we're talking about Nahum, and Nahum essentially is a sequel to what Jonah was talking about. And I think at this point I can actually come down there, if you don't mind. And so as a sequel to it, we now have Nahum, and it starts off, and I'm going to go to, I should actually just back up just a little bit. Before we get to that, I am going to um, be showing very shortly, there's going to be a video coming up here. And I will tell you now, so you folks know, it may be a little bit graphic from some of you who are a little bit more seasoned. 
you may recognize that, that the, the um, title that I have up there, Eve of Destruction. Um, some of you who are going back, I am a baby boomer generation. You may remember in the early 60s, um, Barry McGuire came out with a song. I don't think he wrote it, but he sang it. It was called The Eve of Destruction. And I just thought it was so appropriate to really have that played today because what we're talking about is the city of Nineveh, which is a depiction of it right there. It was a massive city, and it was right on the river there. And it just I, I think it took like three days to walk across the city. It was just huge, absolutely huge. And it was magnificent. Um, all the wealth that they had plundered was contained there. They had many, many gods that they worshipped there. So it was a city that was rich with earthly goods, with earthly things, but it was deprived of, of, of a godly presence. And so I'm going to play that video. It's going to be about three minutes. And I'd like you to just take it in, and hopefully you'll get the idea about what I'm speaking about today. Is that right, or did I go backwards? There it is. Exploding, violence flaring, bullets loading. You're old enough to kill, but not for voting. You don't believe in war, but what's that gun you're toting? And even the Jordan River has bodies floating, but you tell me. Understand what I'm trying to say Can't you feel the fears I'm feeling today If the button is pushed There's no running away There'll be no one to save With the world in a grave Take a look around you, boy It's bound to scare you, boy And you tell me Sitting here just contemplating I can't twist the truth It knows no regulation Handful of senators don't pass legislation And marches alone can't bring integration When human respect is disintegrating This whole crazy world is just too frustrating And you tell me There we go. 
So I don't know, some of you that were, like I said, baby boomer age, you may remember that song. Uh, I thought it was so appropriate. It's probably about, what, 50 years ago we're looking at, or more. And so that's actually the span of time be before, actually there's about 100 years be between the time when Jonah had preached to Nineveh, and then, of course, um, when Nahum was uh, revealing this oracle, this vision he had from God. And so um, in between that time, the northern kingdom of Israel had been taken over. And so the time spans are kind of interesting to me because I'm looking at this thing and when I was reading about Nahum and where we are today and some of those visuals that were on there depicted some of the events that have transpired over the years. So um, are we on the eve of destruction? That's a question I pose to you. Nahum is not meant to terrify you. It's not meant to have you tremble in your seats to any not, it's, if, it's, if there's a fear, it should be like a godly fear, knowing that God is who he is. But nonetheless, I also wanted to show you a picture of what this particular empire was like. So Assyria, the top arrow right there is the city of Nineveh. And then in, in between, there's an arrow in the middle there, and that points to Samaria and to Jerusalem. In that area, that would be part of where the northern and southern kingdoms were. And on the very bottom is Thebes, which is in Egypt. Now, Thebes had been overrun by the Assyrians as well. They had wiped that city out. And interestingly, they were on the, I believe it was the Tigris River. I'm not quite sure. But it was, they were on a river, and that part of that um, time when they were overcome had to do with the river itself, flooding them and so forth. But the Assyrians had taken over that particular um, city as well, which was one of the prominent cities in Egypt. So that's just to give you an idea. All of that green area, initially that darker green area was the Empire of Assyria, and then by their brutal force, they proceeded to encompass all of that, which was pretty much the, the known world at that time. The other thing that's rather interesting is Nineveh would be what it's considered, I think it's Mosul now, if I'm not mistaken, and that's in the northern part of Iraq. So that really plays into this idea about who the Assyrians were. Uh, we can relate to the um, ISIS not so many years ago and some of the terrible pictures that we saw on the TV, and they probably weren't the worst of it. But we've seen the horror of what those, those people had done um, in the name of their God. And it was brutal. It was absolutely, I mean, some of the things we don't even, haven't even been exposed to, but it was more than we could actually comprehend. The Assyrians were just as bad, if not worse. Their whole idea about how they would conquer nations would be through brute force. And some of the things they do were actually horrible. Um, I don't think I even want to describe it, but you get the picture I trust so that would be their empire. Um, they were very prominent. They were at the peak of their glory right here. They were, in, in, they were just believed they were on top of the world. Nothing could touch them is how they believed. It's what they thought. So then we get into the story of Nahum. And as I look at Nahum and studied it, I actually, there's three chapters, but I kind of look at it this way. The first chapter is really about God. It's God actually describing and telling us about who he is to remind us of who he is, to remind the people of Judah who he was. So this is essentially a book that's directed towards them. And then the next two chapters would be, the second chapter would be about the war, about the brutality of that war when they were overcome. And then, of course, the third chapter is about the city of Nineveh itself. And so with that being said, let's start off with this. I'm going to just read right through it for you. So this will take you right through the book. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh, God's wrath against Nineveh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemy. So we identify it right off the bat that it is a vision of Nahum, and he's from Elkosh, and that's about all we know about him. There's really no specific idea about where he came from. There's some ideas about where he may have came from. Most people kind of believe he was in the, in, in the, the, southern, the southern kingdom of Judah, um, just based on how he talks, but there's no, no specific thing. And then, of course, uh, it's, it's from Elkosh, and again, Elkosh is not something that we, we can't even really pinpoint that itself. Um, there is, uh, I, I don't really don't need to go into all of that, but that's essentially what we know about Nahum. And we know that this is the vision that he received. And then this is where God talks about who he is. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. 
He takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. So let's take this and make it more personal. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. So God being jealous is not like us. Okay, when we're jealous, there's a lot packed into that word for us. It's our emotions playing out, and we respond to jealousy in different ways. God is jealous in the sense that he has created us. We're his creation. We were designed and created for his glory, for us to recognize who he is. And he's jealous in the sense that he deserves, rightly so, our unconditional love for him. There should be nothing else between us. So when he's jealous, it's the kind of jealousy where I'm your God, I created you, I'm sovereign over all the universe, and I want you to love me. That's what I've done, that's what I've done for you. It's that jealousy where he deserves that jealousy, I mean the, um, the love from us, and that's part of what he's saying. And he also goes on to say not only is he a jealous God, but he's an avenging God, which means as we love God with our hearts and souls, if we commit ourselves to his service, he is going to avenge us. So any rights, any wrongs that have been done against us, God is there to avenge us for that. And it goes on to say he's an avenging and wrathful God. We look at those words and it's kind of like they're very powerful, avenging and wrathful. You picture this really domineering God just crushing things, but he's just saying, because I'm a jealous God, because I love you, each and every one of you intimately, I will protect you, I will avenge you, and those who come against you, I will pour my wrath out unto them. And it says that he takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. So if you're in the Lord's will, if you're doing what God calls you to do, he's going to take vengeance on your enemies, and he will keep you from being, be, being overrun by your enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He cries, dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Whew. Wow. God is judged. The Lord, Lord is slow to anger. Did you catch that? Do you absorb that part? We're talking about a jealous God, a vengeful God, a God who will pour out his vengeance on our enemies. But it also says the, God is, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. So do you get the idea now? He is telling those who have neglected him, who are not abiding by what he's called them to, he is giving them every opportunity. You have to remember, there's like a 100-year span from when Jonah predict, you know, pronounced the, the judgment on Nineveh. They were forgiven. They repented. They were forgiven. A 100 years has passed, and that's because the Lord is slow to anger. Now, that does not mean that you can go out and sin, and you're getting away with it for a little while, so you kind of think, well, you I can push it a little bit more, a little bit more. Well, yeah, you can. But there will come a day when, because God is who he is, that judgment does come upon you. And that's not a bad thing. The judgment that comes upon you is because God loves you. And so if he disciplines you in some fashion, it's because he wants to draw you back to himself and because he is truly slow to anger. He by no means will clear the guilty, which simply means if people have done wrong, and that goes for our own lives as well now, because I know that in our own spirits, when we go through life and we encounter people, whether it be family members or members of our community, our neighbors, whatever, if, we've, if we feel like we're wronged in some fashion, if they've done something that offends us, it's very easy to kind of hold on to that. And sometimes, I'm speaking for myself, you determine if this is you. Sometimes we even want to figure out ways to kind of even the score because of what's happened to us. But right there. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. He will not let people get away with it. So our job is to understand who God is. And if he's going to clear the, if he's going to make sure that those who are guilty are punished according to what he says, then it's up to us just to release that. Don't hold on to any kind of bitterness or resentment or whatever. Just release that to God and trust and know that he will take care of it. When, when the end of time comes and when everything is completed, God will... He will effectively take care of any wrong that's ever been done. So all the events that have transpired over the generations, all, the, all of the things that we saw previously on that screen, God knows each and every one of them, and in some fashion, some way, he will take care of it. We have seen many, many nations rise and many nations fall because God is an avenging God, and he does punish the guilty. 
His way is in a whirlwind and storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Can you imagine that? Just think about that. In the whirlwind and the storm, God is in the midst of that. If we, if we remember how hurricanes are, if we know how hurricanes are, they are a terrifying force when they're really like a, a Category 5 or so forth. They really are just terrifying. And when they rip through things, you can see on the TV screens the utter destruction that there's. Well, God rides on that. His feet are right there. The dust of his feet, God's in the midst of all that. He controls all of that. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. If the sea is going to try to push its way up onto the shore, God just pushes it back because he has defined, this is where I want land, this is where I want the sea. God does that, okay? God does that. In the natural world, God does that. Makes it, he dries up all the rivers. Bashan, which was, I believe, in the northern part of, of, the, uh, uh, of Israel, it was a very, very lush area, okay? Uh, Carmel was the mountain where Elijah met God. So he's talking about these things. Are, he dries up the rivers. Bashan, they wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt. Think about volcanoes. The mountains that are melting, volcanoes. You're described right here. That's God. God's doing that. He has that power. The mountains quake. The earth heaves before him. That's part, part, probably part of this whole idea about the earthquakes and stuff. The earth actually heaves. God's power. Okay, we, we, we can, we can de- describe it in human terms. We can describe, describe it by the science that we know. But who does that? God the world and all who dwell in it. Now we're getting a little bit more personal. We're talking to the people directly. We describe that God is this awesome God. Hopefully you're getting this picture that there's nothing in this natural world that God does not have his hand in. There's nothing in this world that God cannot orchestrate according to his purposes, even if we don't understand it. Even if it looks like it's a horrific thing, there's a reason behind it. Our human minds cannot comprehend what God's will is but he's got a plan and a perfect plan for this word for you and me. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Again, I mean, it's just giving you this picture. You cannot stand before a mighty God if you've done things that you shouldn't have done. He will judge you, okay? And it's not, again, I say it's not a bad thing. Don't be frightened by it. Understand that he wants you to be drawn back to him. He wants you to understand who he is. And he's created you for a purpose, and that purpose is to honor and glorify him. But here is the good news. You look at that little picture. The Lord is good, a stronghold in a day of trouble. He knows who those who take refuge in him. Do you, you understand that he's, he's, he's a stronghold? So when, when things come against you, you have to go someplace. You have to have a refuge, and God himself is your refuge. He's your stronghold. Our mighty God, who is the sovereign king over the entire universe, calls you to himself that you can come to him and take refuge in him. And you don't have to be frightened about the circumstances in your life. We just saw a testimony a short while ago about this woman who had this cancerous thing there. God was in the midst of that. It's terrifying to have somebody predict to you, you have cancer. Can you imagine? I, I've not experienced that myself, but I've known people who have had that, who have experienced it and gone through it. Some have passed on, some have been healed. But that's got to be terrifying. But God's your refuge. You go to God in these difficult times. If you have a relationship that's not working out well, God's in the midst of that. But you have to go to him. It says he knows those who take refuge in. So when you go to him, he knows you intimately. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Troubles will not rise up a second time, for they are entangled thorns like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries. That is an illusion, or it's a reference to what's going to happen to Nineveh. Okay, God is going to wipe them out by means that some of that is going to be in relation to a flood. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But it's an overwhelming flood. I, I think it was, a John, it was a Johnstown where there was that massive flood many years ago when the dam broke, and that waters, that those waters came pouring into that community and just wiped them out. Well, that, that's the picture you get here. It's an overwhelming flood, and it's going to be a complete end of the adversaries, and he'll, he's going to pursue them. If that doesn't get him, he'll still pursue them. Okay, what do you plot against the Lord? He'll make a complete, complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. When God takes care of it the first time, 
when he does what he does, when he ex executes his judgment, you don't have to worry about it popping up again. When he does it, it's done, complete. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink, they are consumed like stubble fully dried. So this talks about all of these nations and so forth, I believe, talks about how they're going to just be stumbling around, just confused, not being able to even do anything, and he will consume them. If you've ever seen dry leaves or dry um, grass, so to speak, and you put it into a fire, you want to kind of build a fire, it just it goes up, and that's the, that's the idea. It's just going to be consumed. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counsel. Now we're talking about the king, the Assyrian king. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. So he's, he's painting this picture that he knows it's the Assyrian king that's coming against these folks. And now remember, this is Nahum speaking to the nation of, of the, southern, the southern king, Judah. So he's talking about them being many. There's this huge, massive army. There's all these people who can come against them at any given moment. And he says they will be cut down, they'll be cut down and pass away. And he had passed judgment on them previously. The northern kingdom, of course, by this point in time, the northern kingdom had been swallowed up by Assyria. And so he's saying, I've afflicted you. I'm not going to afflict you anymore. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. He is going to release them from that bondage. The um, southern kingdom, Judah, had not necessarily been overtaken yet by the Assyrian king, even though I believe, if I might correct on my, um, what I had read, about 46 of the major cities in southern Judah had been overtaken by the Assyrian king. He never did take Jerusalem. So in that time, if the capital, so to speak, was not overtaken, it wasn't considered taken. But if you, you know, they were trying to get there, but God did not allow that to happen. So... He's saying, I'm going to break whatever has been put on you, whatever yoke you're carrying, whatever bonds you feel, I'm going to break that, and I'm going to just burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more, you're, now this is referring to the king. So this is going to them. So when they hear this vision, no more shall your name be perpetuated. And actually, it's more of a, it's more of a consolation to the nation of Judah. So they read, they're reading this, and this is what God is saying about what's going to happen. No more shall your name be perpetuated. This is about the king. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave. You are vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows. Never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. God is reminding them, listen, you are my people. I've called you to myself. You've kind of slid backwards. You've done things you shouldn't be doing. You know it. And now I'm reminding you, and I'm telling you right now, to keep your feast, okay? Fulfill your vows that you've made, and never again shall the worthless pass through you. He's utterly cut off. It's a promise to them. This is something that would encourage them, that would lift them up as they are now hearing God pour this out and telling them that he's doing the, this is what God will do. And now we get into the destruction of Nineveh itself. So I'm going to just go through this fast, but I hope you get this picture. If you, if you really envision this, the scatter has come against you. Now, this, is, this would be the Babylonians, and I believe they had also partnered with the Medes at this time. So these, these other nations, which had been overtaken by Assyria, they were now coming together, plotting against the king of Assyria. They wanted to overthrow him. So the scatter has come against you. Now, listen to this. Man your ramparts. Watch the road. Dress for battle. Collect all your strength. Gather all your armies. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The Lord is restoring joy. He's telling them this is going to happen now. The other ones might be gathering together, but the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. God's chosen people, calling them back to him, himself. Remember who I am. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters, and the cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. You get this picture of the Babylonians, this, this mighty force coming against this impenetrable. The, 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 if I understand correctly, I believe this, the, um, the walls were about 100 feet high. They were very thick. They, a couple of chariots could go around on the exterior of those walls. They could ride on top. They were just massive. So as far as the Syrian people were considering, they thought they were impenetrable. They thought no one could ever hurt them, ever touch them. 
And yet now it's talking about this mighty army coming against them. Um, the, the chariots are flashing metal. So it's this picture of these chariots, these charging horses, these chariots coming against them. All of these soldiers dressed in scarlet coming against a mighty, mighty army. And probably still at this point, they might be thinking, if you're an Assyrian, on the wall, eh, no problem. Then it goes on to say, he remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are open. The palace melts away. That is a reference to them now being confused. All of this is going on. They're being bombarded. They're being attacked. The river gates are open. There is some reference to some of the commentaries I read where the Medes, the Babylonians, and some of these other, other uh, approaching armies actually basically dammed the river for a port, uh, part of time so that the waters would build up behind there. And at some point, they released those, that dam that they had built and those flooding waters, as we saw before. These waters came washing in, and they actually undermined the wall, which is supposedly impenetrable because they were on the banks. It undermined the wall to the point where the wall sort of collapsed. And guess what happened? Guess what happened? The Babylonians, the Medes, all those who were coming against them had this point of entry, and they came into the city. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off. Her slaves grow lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turn back. That's a picture of if you've ever seen like a pool of water or even a swimming pool, and perhaps one side of the swimming pool gives way. What happens? That water just rushes out and floods everything. That's, that's kind of what they're saying here. So Nineveh is like this pool of water, and the waters are running away, and they're trying to say, stop, stop, but it's, you can't. It's just pouring out. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There's no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Desolate, desolation, and when hearts melt and knees tremble, anguishes in all loins, all faces grow pale. They are, they're, they're shaking in their boots right now because this, they're being overwhelmed. They're being taken. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions? Where the lion and lioness went, where his cubs were with none to disturb? One of the things that was prominent in Assyrian is they kind of had the, the lion as one of their, um, you, that would be like their mascot, so to speak. But they had this idea that they were a lion, an overwhelming lion. And it talks about where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions. So when they plunder these places, when they wipe out these nations and so on, they would bring all of this back into their lion's den, so to speak. The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lioness. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. So this is them bringing all this stuff in, and they, they were consuming it. The people in Nineveh were consuming all of this wealth that they had in all of these people. Many of them were um, put into slave positions and so forth if they weren't terribly mutilated or harmed or killed for just sport. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. Whew. Whoa. little short part there. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. Would you want that to be something that God proclaimed in your life? Behold, I am against you. None of us want that. And I, I would dare say that every one of us has a healthy respect for what God's done for us. But I want you to understand the gravity of who we are and who God is. And this book that we're talking and walking through right now should be an encouragement to know that God is just, he's faithful, he will avenge any wrongs done against you. It only requires us to totally trust in him, to understand who he is, and to believe it with our whole heart and soul. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. It's pretty much describing the fact that they are going to go into oblivion. And now for Nineveh itself, that previous chapter was about the war and how they were overtaken and overrun, and running through the streets, confused, disoriented, just being overwhelmed by this massive army coming in to defeat them. Probably a lot of them were in disbelief, particularly even the, the leaders, I would imagine, at that point, since they saw all of this happening, they were probably just scattering themselves. They didn't know what to do. They were not prepared for this to happen to them. And now to the city itself. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plumber, no end to the prey. It specifically says woe to the bloody city because that's exactly how they came to where they were, by blood, by the brutal things that they did. That's how they assumed power. That's how they became this powerful nation because they were just vicious, brutal the crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheels, galloping horses and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, 
Hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. It was such a massive, overwhelming force that the bodies were piling up. I mean, can you get this? It's kind of, you know, when you, when you read it and you think about it, I mean, it's an overwhelming picture. It's kind of horrifying. But that's how it was. God's wreaking his judgment on that nation and the very things that they did to all these other nations beforehand that is now coming back to them. What you reap, so what you sow, what you uh, you'll reap what you sow, so to speak. And that's exactly what's happening now. And all for countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of it deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and people with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord. That's twice now. And will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. There were some occasions when they would defeat. Um, different communities or different nations, that they would literally strip them naked to make them just feel more ashamed and more vulnerable. That's, that's just one of the things they did. God's turning around and he's saying, I'm going to do the same thing to you. You who were once a mighty nation, you who are the ones that overwhelmed all these other nations and thought you were the whatever, I'm going to just strip you right down. The, the nations are going to see, they're going to, they're going to see your nakedness and kingdoms and you're going to be, you're going to be shamed and in that day and age, of course, men had a prominent position. Women, not so much. That's just the way it was back then. So for a man to be humiliated like that, that was like the worst of anything in terms of being who they were. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. It's literally saying he's going to throw garbage at them. He's just going to cover them with filth. It's a very strong picture of what God is now pouring out on this nation that had an opportunity to turn to him. The interesting thing, too, is you may or may not know this, but in that time, if a nation was overtaken by another, they would believe that not only did they overtake that nation and they would take all of the wealth that was part of that nation, but they also would believe that they could take that God, too. So nations went down and they would take their gods that would become theirs, and they would feel that they had overtaken that. Now, in this case, they believed, since they had taken the northern kingdom, that they also had overtaken God. Well, God allowed them to take the northern kingdom, but they never took God. Nobody can. And so now God is coming back, and he's wreaking his judgment on them. All who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Are you better than Thebes and sat by the Nile with water around her, rampart at sea, and water her wall? That is a reference to the community in Egypt, the city in Egypt, which was a prominent city. And right here, it's a reference to the fact that they were wiped out as well. Are you better than them? No, you're not. So the same thing that happened to them is going to happen to you. It's happening to you. Cush was their strength, Egypt too, and that without limit, put in the Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men cast lots, and all were great men were bound in chains. So that's really telling you that that nation, which was a mighty nation, that now they're in captivity, they literally were dashed. This is a horrible picture, but the, the infants of those who had been conquered were actually, they were doing these horrific things. Uh, some of the, uh, of the leaders of those communities, they would literally put them in chains. They would have them in a cage at the gates of different cities that they had to just display who they were, that these kings who might have been mighty at one time, we now have them in captivity. They're in chains and whatever they did, else they did to them. You will also be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe fruits. If shaken, they will fall into the mouth of the, weeder, of the eater. This is now saying that just like a fig tree that's ripe, if it's shaken a little bit, all those fruits will fall down. That's what he's saying. That, so your fortresses, they're not mighty any longer. They're not strong. They're not impenetrable. Because I, God, am judging you now according to what I want to do, in spite of what you think you can do. Behold, your troops are women in their midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. So the city itself was ravaged with fire. Draw water for the sea. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread of the mortar. Take hold of the brick mole. So they're saying, you know, you got to do things to kind of stop this happening to you. There's no stopping it. There will, there will the fire defore you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust, multiply like the grasshopper. It's kind of saying as many people as you have, as many soldiers as you have, as much strength that you think you have, you can, you can do that. Keep, keep putting them in there. Keep multiplying it. doesn't matter. 
You increase your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spreads its wings and fly away. So eventually, even those who are the locusts, those who are the people that were supposed to defend you, that you want to multiply, they're going to be going away. The merchants were profiting off of all this war. Those who were involved in the Assyrian Empire, many of them profited from the fact that other nations were overcome. Your princes are like grasshoppers, your scribes like clouds of locusts sliding on the fences in the day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. Even your, um, it would be the, even the priests and those who were in positions of authority with the various gods, all of them, okay? They might be settling in, but they're going to scatter. Your shepherds are asleep. Shepherds were considered like leaders in those communities. So that was a, a term that was used. You know, we use it in one, a particular fashion, but the shepherds are asleep. O king of Assyria, your noble slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There's no, there's no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. The king of Assyria had been overtaken. He was wounded. And what's happening? As mighty as he was, the empire that he had established, he had authority over all of these communities. You had seen that map previously. He's now wounded. You wound his grief. All who hear the news about you clap their hands. They hear that he's dead. And they're clapping. Not one person raised any effort to do anything to save him, to, hear, to help him. And the last thing is, for upon whom has not come your unceasing, unceasing evil? And that references all those who had been overtaken by this particular king, by this empire. It wouldn't be so many years afterwards that, I think it was maybe 50 years afterwards or so, that Nineveh eventually was overtaken by the Babylonians in the fashion that's described. So these words are true. These words took place. There's records of it. And the Babylonian Chronicle, which is a, some, some uh, literary st things that we have from antiquity, uh, they also outline this particular thing. So these words are all true. So what do we do with all that? I do have a thing here I could put up. You can read it if you'd like. I'll read it for you. On the side, there's supposed to be application, so it's a little bit small. But the whole idea is this. No doubt we have all felt, and this is something you can take in right now. We think about this after what I just described to you. No doubt we all have felt overwhelmed by the darkness, both within ourselves and in our world. It's a true statement for me. You decide if it's a true statement for you. Nahum lived in a dark time, a time in which the faithful few must have wondered how long they would have to resist cultural and spiritual compromises. Does that not speak to where we are right now? We are in a nation that is falling behind. We are in a nation that's ripe for judgment. And sooner or later, God will wreak his judgment on our nation. I don't know what the timing is. And this is not designed to have you quake in your boots and go out there and start going down into your storm shelters. This is designed to let you know that you have a God who loves you. You have a God who wants the very best for each and every one of you, for your children, your grandchildren, your brothers, your sisters, your moms, your dads. He loves you deeply. He created you. He's the one. His breath, his breath is in our lungs. If it wasn't for God, we would not be here. The very fact that we're in this building, God is holding all this together, all of it. It's God. Let that sink in. I don't think we take enough time to contemplate. We're so busy in our lives doing this and that, trying to make a living, looking at, at, at the various things that are coming up on, on the news, and it, it, it terrifies us sometimes. We hear it breaks my heart to hear about these killings left and right. Almost every day now, you hear about another massacre taking place. Those people that are committing these atrocities, they're consumed by evil. And it's because perhaps someone didn't take the time to share with them. We have an obligation. It's us that are the light in this world. God's created us for a purpose. Each and every one of you has a place in his kingdom. And he's called you to do whatever you need to do. And you know what your gifts are. And if you don't know them, Talk to an elder, talk to a brother or sister and say, you know, how can I serve? What is it that I can do when you're out in your community or with your family? Speak about what God's done for you. It's not real hard. You don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to be able to take these theological ideas and pass them on to somebody. Just talk about your story, just like Ronnie did today. Each and every one of us has stories. My wife and I have stories about God's grace. I met my wife, Linda, right here, 
who is my helpmate, and she's been by my side. I met her January 14, 1977, on a blind date. And I was not the person I am today when I met her, and she had just come through, if you don't mind me sharing, honey. She had come through a very difficult divorce, not of her own making, but she had two young sons, five and two and a half, and God put her in a position where she was alone and trying to kind of put her life back together. God brought me to her, and I wasn't looking for anything in particular except maybe meet a nice girl and have a, you know, have a nice time. Met her January 14th. Three months later, and I don't know, only God knows, I asked her to marry me, and she said yes. And then three months later, July 9th of 1977, we were married, and we, have, we are going to be celebrating our 46th wedding anniversary July 9th of this year. I have three wonderful grown kids, my two boys and my daughter, nine grandchildren and seven great-grandchildren, and God has just blessed us. And I am overwhelmed with what he has done for me. And I hope you get overwhelmed by what God can do for you. Let him in. He loves you dearly. Have you ever found your will to do what's right, weakening as you become discouraged with what you see in your life and the world around you? The prophet Nahum reminds us of God's active hand, working even in the darkest of times to bring justice and hope throughout the world, and he will do it because that's the God we serve. That's the God we serve. You can trust that and believe it. We have an opportunity now to take in what he's shared with, that I've shared with you. I trust it's been meaningful to you. Just take out the things that really apply to you. If I've said something that doesn't really set right with you, you can always talk to me. Um, I, I am always open to criticism if it's appropriate. And if I've said something that is not in line with what you said, we can talk about that. I'm willing to do that, certainly. So I really so much appreciate the opportunity to be here today. Many years ago, when, we first, when you first started coming in here, I had the opportunity um, to preach at that time as well. And I, some of you may have been there at the time. Some of you may, have, may not have. Um, but I would like to let you know, and I, I should have done this earlier, but I am, my name is Joe Slazinski. I am a elder, and I serve here at Goodwill. Um, my wife and I are over at the Port Jervis campus. So we're on the other side. But you're part of our family, whether you like it or not. You're brothers and sisters, and that's how it is. So we're part of the family together. And uh, we just want you to know that you know, we are so we are so thrilled um, as we went through this process of introducing uh, this idea about having a, a home, a church home, as Pastor Marcos shared. Um, I, I trust it brings you great joy for the opportunities that you will have. You'll be in another section of town where you will have a facility that will be open seven days a week. You'll have multiple opportunities to serve God. And I would encourage you, as they spoke about earlier, take that opportunity. Wherever you plug in, you know, just plug in someplace, and you start to build a fellowship. You start to build that community, and it makes it so much sweeter. It's kind of like when you have your family gathering at Thanksgiving or Christmas. You get family together. You have that sense of, you know, it's us together, the love that just pours out, and that's what we are. We're a community, a family, so keep that in mind. Thank you for this opportunity, and we now have a time where we come to communion. So this is another wonderful aspect of who we are as believers um, God has called us to come together. He has called us to come and share a meal with him. And so that's essentially what we're doing now. And the whole point of what we're doing with communion as a community of believers is we're coming together to share a meal and to remember, to remember what God has done for us, that God in his love for us, his immense, immeasurable love, wanted to do something to restore that relationship which was broken in the early days with Adam and Eve. He wanted to restore that relationship. And so what did he do? He asked his one and only son to come down to earth, to be born a human, to be 100% man, to come on earth, and to take all that wrath on himself. Do you realize that when Jesus went on that cross, everything that was described in Nahum, was poured out on our Savior. Everything that we do that isn't appropriate, Jesus takes that on himself. He has taken it on himself. And because of that, you are forgiven. And when you're forgiven, you have access to a heavenly Father. You have access to an eternal home. And that should bring you great joy for what that means. So this is an opportunity now to remember what Jesus has done and what God has done. 
These are words from 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, this is a table that is for all. You don't have to be a member here. Um, if you're visiting today, you are welcome to participate in this. The only thing is that you would have to be, I would ask that you reflect and Understand if you've this, had this personal relationship with Christ, if you've asked Jesus into your life, is he, if he is your Lord and Savior, and it's something you, you want to do to express that love for him, you can come to this table. So you're not restricted in that regard. And if you don't know Jesus, if you don't know this relationship that we know about, speak to us afterwards. And we will talk to you about how you can come to know him. It's not hard. God does not make this hard. He makes it so easy. So that opportunity will be present for you as well. Pray with me. Lord, we ask that you set these elements apart for a holy purpose. May they be to our faith, your body broken, your blood shed. We know that the elements do not change. They remain matzah in place of bread and grape juice in place of wine. However, we also believe that our faith cannot help but change as we meet your presence at this holy table. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So I believe all of you have the bread. I guess this is how... Does he, does Marcos just leave this on the table when he does this, or does he use the other cup? The other cup? I mean, I have a cup here. I do have that. Oh, okay. Well, thank you very much. I wasn't sure if I was supposed to drink from that one or not. <laughs> anyway, so, so much for that. So the matzah and the bread and the wine have been distributed. The body of Christ was broken so that we might be made whole. All who believe, partake. As we reflect on that and remember what is done to, for us through Jesus, let us all remember this now. The blood of Christ was shed so that our sins might be washed away. In his grace, all who believe, partake. I'll just give you a few moments to take that all in. This is not necessarily a benediction, or it may be, but let me just share these words with you as well. From Numbers 6, 22 and 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. Will he be gracious to you? The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. As we remember Christ, as we remember what he did for us, let that peace also flow into you. And when you leave this place, take that peace with you and share it with the world. Thank you again for listening to today's sermon. For more resources and information about Goodwill Church, visit goodwillchurch.org. God bless.